Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast, a convenient place where you can stay up to date on what's popular in the swine industry. By listening to Popular Pig, you will receive invaluable information on the latest trends, news, and research from various experts who guide the global pork industry. Popular Pig is brought to you by Swine Tech, the award-winning creators of Smart Guard and Pig Flow. To learn how Pig Flow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com. Popular Pig is also made possible by Johnsonville Foods, Hypor Genetics, Swine Robotics, SwineWeb.com, and Innovative Heating, the manufacturers of Hog Hearth. Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast. My name is Matthew Rota, your host for today's episode. Today we're going to talk about creating good lactating sows with Dr. Kia Bird. Thanks for joining us today, Kia. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. It's been fun to get to know you over the last year and a half, couple of years, and I really look forward to you sharing the wisdom that you gave everyone at the Survivability Conference. It was a great presentation, and I'm just excited to share that with our audience. Before we get started, I want to note this is going to be one of the first episodes of 2022, and joining us is Hypor as a sponsor, so we appreciate their support. So as we kind of dive into this, I'd like for you to introduce yourself and your background. Yeah, so Dr. Kiaberg, I am a native of Oregon. Um, I grew up with about 20 show pig sows, and so I started with pigs from a long time ago and then was involved in 4-H um, and livestock judging. That's really what brought me out to the Midwest. I knew I wanted to be more involved with swine, and there's not very many pigs in Oregon, and so I needed to get to a more swine-dense area. So I came out to K-State. I was part of the livestock judging team there, and that's really where I got introduced to the K-State Applied Swine Nutrition Team um, as an undergraduate student, and I helped there with several trials, and I was like, huh. Maybe grad school is the thing that I should be doing um, with my life. And so I got involved with that team, um, pursued both my master's and my PhD at K-State, and then would have graduated in the middle of COVID and moved up to Pipestone, Minnesota to work with the Pipestone nutrition team and the Pipestone management team. And so today what I would do is I work um, on all of our sow formulation for about our 300,000 sows. And then I work on our sow technical services team, which is our research arm um, within Pipestone that looks at different protocols within the sow farm. And then I also work um, on our nutrition team in terms of our wean to finish nutrition research part. And so I coordinate those trials as well. So nutrition research focus today, um, the sows is my passion. That's what I got to spend a lot of my time on in grad school. And I'm glad I have the opportunity um, to work with so many wonderful people um, with sows in my current role today. So what was it? You, you said sales are your passion. Is that what you really gravitated to when you got introduced to all of this? It was the sow and the piglet? Yeah, um, really, it was probably my second trial in grad school where I got to um, go to a commercial sow farm, Pill and Family Farms, actually. And so it was there in that particular um, time period. Pillins was great to work with. I enjoyed being on the sow farm every day and seeing that the difference that I could make with the one research trial and what we were able to find out. And I probably left with more questions than answers from that. And that's really what uh, led me to pursue my PhD, um, but really being able to impact piglet survival um, and creating good lactating sows so that they can um, have successful litters, improve colostrum intake, improve birth weights, improve weaning weights, um, and really just see the success of those mamas and babies. It's it's really fun for me. And those sows have personalities too. So it's fun when you go into the barn and um, get to deal with those ladies. So it's a, it's a great time. I think one thing that really excited me when it came to the sow farm was there seemed to be an endless amount of opportunity to mm-hmm. evolve and improve. 
It was like, you're always going to be chasing perfection and you probably weren't, are never going to get there, but it's this, this, the pursuit of perfection that is just so much fun. Yes. I think there's so much opportunity um, in the cell from, I mean, if you think of that population, there's so much variation in your cells and you have so many different age ranges, so many different purities in your cell structure. And so the ability to influence maybe your guilt population versus your purity two population versus your purity seven population, all of those are um, individuals. And yet we try and treat them as a single population and try and apply the same thing to all of them and it might not work. And so the ability for us to research and maybe intervene or figure out ways that we can apply something to maybe your guilts or your parity ones um, to improve how they perform and um, their efficiency and their sustainability and the animal welfare there. There's so many different areas that you can tackle within this out farm. I think that's, that's really what drew me to it. Yeah, we were interviewing Dr. Ashley Decker, and she was basically saying that the gilts are the redheaded stepchild. So even within the South Farm with the GDU, there's a whole area there that we just kind of use, but yep. there's a lot of opportunity. Yes, if we can uh, get a GDU research facility going, I think that would be leaps and bounds, because today is just one of those areas that you're, uh, you're hoping is managed correctly, and we do our best, but there is so much opportunity there. I think that's really the next uh thing we need to start uncovering within the the sow and guilt world. So before we jump into our topic today, would you be able to share something about yourself that most of your colleagues would not know? Oh, man, what would most of my colleagues not know? I would say maybe that I was a state championship swimmer. I don't know if they... wow know that. So yeah, I have zero hand-eye coordination. Um, so that's why I gravitated, gravitated towards swimming. And so yeah, I was a swimmer growing up. That's awesome. Yeah. And was that in uh, Oregon? That was in Oregon. Yep. Oregon. Well, cool. Well, let's hop into it. What does it mean to create successful sows and farrowing? And uh, let's start with body condition. Yeah, so body condition is the number one thing when I go into South Farms that I'm looking at. And so that's really going to start um, in your guilt population. So first of all, making sure that we're not getting our guilts too big um, at their age at first breeding. We're making sure they're not too old. Oftentimes, if they're older, they're going to be heavier conditioned. And so really being diligent about getting your keynote service um, and not having a fat guilt. Many times, I think we have way fatter guilts than we need to have, and that creates further problems down the road. So number one is just not creating a fat guilt to begin with. And then number two is during that first gestation period, um, a lot of times people think sows need more feed than they really need. And certainly there's a time period um, in which if she's recovering from a lactation period, she needs to have more energy provided to her because she's recovering those body reserves. But if she's a guilt um, during that first gestation, she really doesn't need any additional feed um, to get to the farrowing process. And so I think if you can be diligent in terms of uh, potentially using the sow caliper, that's something that we do within Pipestone of and found to be very successful. And we'll go in and we'll caliper them at 30, 60, and 90 days in gestation and adjust their feed boxes to either a fat or a normal or a thin setting. Um, we found that to help control variation because there's plenty and plenty of data out there that if that sow's fat, when she enters the farrowing house, her lactation feed intake is going to be suppressed and lactation feed intake is king when it comes to the farrowing house. And so if you can make sure that she's not fat going in, she's in a normal condition, um, that's really what's going to provide you success there in terms of lactation feed intake. So you had hinted on the process that you guys use to ensure that that body condition is, is focused on and managed well. 
What are some of the challenges that come to training new people or <laughs> ensuring compliance to management of body condition? Yep, that's certainly a challenge. Um, what we did, and it was really uh, um, with Arkin Wu, Dr. Arkin Wu, he uh, was starting out, or he had already started the program of the caliper when I came to Pipestone. Um, but prior to that, we would have been similar to a lot of systems using a body condition score. And the challenge of the body condition score, as we know, is that that can vary from person to person. I might like a little bit thinner sow um, than Arkin likes and vice versa. And so that creates challenges in terms of the variation that we start to drift one way versus the other over time. And so once we implemented the caliper, um, it's certainly a great tool, but with all tools, it's only as good as it is when it's used correctly. And so um, some of the challenges that we did find when trying to implement across 75 South Farms um, was one, it's just not placed in the correct area. And so we created a training video um, in both English and Spanish to help with that. And then even besides the training video, um, one of the things that's super helpful is you just go into the South farm and you go with that person or you go with whomever um, the three or four people that may body condition in the South farm are and you watch where they're putting that caliper and we created a handle for it so that they actually don't have to physically reach so far into the South. They can actually just place um, the caliper on there and it's about a three foot handle. So it makes it easier for those people to use. Um, but making sure the handle isn't hitting their rump because then that changes the angle of where the little dial goes. And so just little things that you don't think of. And until you see it live in action in the South arm, um, I'd say there's definitely constant training and retraining depending as people move throughout positions in the South arm. Um, but yeah, just trust, but verify would be my uh, input for the caliper use. And it seems like this whole area of body condition too is going to be one area that over the next 10 years, technology, I think is going to play a, a really big role in. So it'll be cool to see how this, this changes and evolves over the next decade. Yes. We, I mean, with the technologies of cameras advancing, I know we have pig counting technology and weight prediction technology. And I think a very underserved area would definitely be South body condition technology. And so the easier that we can make it, whether it's when she's entering the fairing house or leaving the fairing house or something that can scan over the top of all the cells and look at body condition. I think that's, that's the way we need to go. And I think there's technology out there right around the corner that we'll be able to grab to use that to help us uh, be better at what we do. Absolutely. So when we move forward here, amount of feed and lactation when loaded, how is that impacting things? What have you seen there? What do you guys try? Yeah. Um, so a large chunk of my PhD was really looking at the timing and the size of meals pre-Faro um, and how that can impact fairing duration. Because I think it was probably 2017 or 2018, there was a popular press article that came out from Dr. Peter Thiel and his group in the Netherlands, where it really showed that as that time from when a, la a sow has last consumed a meal to when she starts farrowing, as we shorten that duration to less than three hours, you can reduce um, her farrowing duration, which awesome. Hello. As these sows start to have 16, 17, 18, 20 total barn. If you think of a farrowing interval being 30 minutes on average, you really start to get up there in terms of uh, length of that farrowing period. And uh, you'll go on sow farms today and see sows that are farrowing for 12 hours. And so we know that our stillborn risk is going to increase when that happens. And so is there a way that we can play with the amount of feed she consumes or the timing in which she gets feed when she's loaded into the fairing house? Um, that's really what I looked at. And so what I found um, or, or what I looked at was feeding sows ad libitum when she's loaded into the fairing house feeding her every six hours. So that's obviously that's a, a labor intense program and not something I would recommend for everyone, but from a research standpoint, every six hours to shorten that time from when she last got a meal. And it was just a pound and a half of feed. So still getting that six pounds, but a pound and a half of feed. 
And then I tried another treatment that was six pounds, but just once a day. So she wanted to get another meal for 24 hours. And what we saw is we couldn't change varying duration by trying those three different treatments, which was interesting. And I was like, shoot, I just spent an entire summer with 700 sows and I couldn't find a difference there. Um, but what was interesting, I think, would be the fact that we saw a difference in farrowing assistance. And so how often we sleeved sows in those treatments. And what we found is that when a sow was fed ad libitum prior to farrowing, she had the highest farrowing assistance. And so whether that's a factor of we're blocking the birth canal a little bit by having extra feces build up also in that uh, rectum area, that would be a blockage that could be happening. Two, when a sow's fed ad libitum, you hope that she's eating more frequently, but maybe she is a binge eater and will eat a large meal and then we'll eat again for another 12 to 14 hours. So are we truly um, getting energy intake into her more often? Um, and so I think one of those two answers could be why we saw an increase in farrowing assistance needed. But what we also saw is that when we gave a lot more frequently fed small meals, we dropped um, the amount of farrowing assistance needed. And so that kind of goes back to Dr. Teal's work saying, okay, well, more frequency might actually help get a meal closer to when she starts farrowing. And farrowing is a marathon, right? It's not a sprint. You watch those marathon runners, they go out there and they're eating and drinking Gatorade and everything during that marathon. Our sows don't get up to eat and drink when they're farrowing. And so if you really think of it in that mindset, if you can have your carb load right before you go out and run your marathon, at least you're going to have a little bit more energy there to get to that last piglet. And so I think of farrowing as a marathon. And is there anything that we can do in that pre-farrow period that's not harming her, um, but rather help her during that long process? So you had mentioned stillborns with farrowing duration. Have we seen anything with sow mortality or prolapsing due to um, lengthy farrowing sessions or not? We've looked extensively at our data here within Pipestone, and I know um, Iowa State has looked at a couple different things there as well, and we have not found any correlation with increasing prolapse. I wish we could find something there nutritionally, um, but at this point, it, it doesn't look like there's anything um, from too much feed or too little feed that's causing prolapse around that time period. Yeah, it's interesting. You'd think, you'd think all right, you got all this energy going into birthing. And it's going from four hours to six hours, eight hours, 12 hours, whatever it might be. You'd think all that extra energy would have some kind of a tie to it, but it's, it's just such a hard problem to solve right now for the industry. Yep. I agree. So farrowing room management. Now we got the sow in there. We've hit on a little bit of management strategies when it comes to feeding, but how can we ensure successful sows and gilts on the farrowing management side? Yeah. So when I, when I go into a cell farm, oftentimes one, I spend it on body condition in the gestation barn. So making sure we have them as best in terms of condition as we can. But then the second question I get asked more often is how can I improve my lactation feed intake? These sows are some of these cells might be drying up or um, these gills just aren't performing well. And so we go and walk through the farrowing house. Um, and what I notice most often would be your gilts are the ones that are struggling, right? Because it's their first time in um, it's like their first day of kindergarten. They don't know where the cubbies are. They don't know where to hang their backpack, right? And so these gilts, it's really a new environment for them. And so where is their water? Um, where is their feed? Is it presented in a way that they can see it? Are we making sure we get them up? Because um, oftentimes after those gilts feral, they're in pain. It's a new experience. But if we remember to get them up, um, at least we know that they physically stood up. And then maybe they will find the water or you need to show them where the water is. Um, because a lot of times if they're fed in a trough water 
or they might not have seen a nipple water before, depending on how the GDU was set up. Um, so really just prioritize those guilts and make sure that you know that they've consumed a meal that day or at least seen some sort of feed. Because if they start to wither away in those first one to two days after farrowing, it is very, very hard to get them to come back. So that's number one is just make sure your gilts know where their access to water and feed is. Sometimes what I've seen in some of those uh, lactation feeders is maybe it has a ball or a little lever that the sow has to flip back and forth to get access to feed. And gilts might not intuitively know to play with that. But what I've seen at some sow farms is they'll take a jar of peanut butter and just dip the lever on there. And it's just another scent um, for those sows to get to see. And so it was just kind of a clever thing that I saw. I was like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Something to try and draw her to that feeder. And I mean, similar thing for your sows as well. Um, sometimes you just get some hard heads in there that don't want to get up or get lazy, especially some of your older purity sows. And so again, you can go in there and just make sure you get them up. It's a very simple concept, but something I think we overlook sometimes. And if within those first three days after fairing, if she hasn't consumed a meal, um, she needs some attention pretty quick. Absolutely. So I guess with that, if you have if you have a sow that hasn't consumed a meal in a few days or in a couple of days, what do you typically recommend? Yeah, a couple of things um, that we will try is get another feed pan in there. Um, if you have a GDU on site or have some nursery creep feed or something sweeter on site, I recommend putting that in front of them. Um, I know the corn and soybean meal, we formulate that as nutritionists to be great, but maybe it's not always the sweetest and most enticing thing to some of those sows that don't want to eat. And so a sweeter feed, um, a different phase feed, something like that, and then even gruel it a little bit, add some water into there. Um, and sometimes even what we've found to be successful is just get the sow out of the farring crate and take her on a lap around the farring house. Maybe she just needs a little bit of a exercise or something along the lines of that to uh, create her appetite as well. Yeah, we'd always get them out, walk them around a little bit, let them kind of move around. Seemed to help yeah. a lot. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to the industry and kind of where we are today, I guess I'd like for you to share what excites you the most about where we are and what frustrates you the most. What excites me most um, today would be, I think we see more in terms of a research standpoint, um, on the south side, I think there's a greater draw towards that. You see a couple more universities getting into the commercial field. You see more um, production systems opening their doors for research in the south farm. And I think that's huge because when you go back into the literature, and I found this frustration when I was in graduate school, there's a lot of trials that are done at a university where there's 20 or 30 sows per treatment. And when you try and look at those trials, it's so frustrating because we know there's so much variation there. Yeah. What? true like one sow can completely screw that up if she had 10 stillborns and so it completely throws the data and so being able to get into a production system that has 5,000 sows or 3,000 sows and you can get a couple hundred sows per treatment um, I think that is really exciting today and the amount of uh, production systems that are allowing graduate students um, or undergraduate students to come in and get trained within those facilities that's what really put me on the path to know I want to work within a production system and so um, I think that's what excites me the most what frustrates me the most? Oh, maybe lack of technology or innovation that we use in South Arms. I think if you look at the agronomy industry and how automated things are and what technology there is and algorithms that can be utilized there, we are definitely lacking in terms of animal agriculture. Um, it's not just in the swine industry. It's probably in the, in the cattle industry. Chicken industry is probably a little bit more automated. Um, 
But we know that if we're trying to recruit young people into our South Farms, and we know it's hard to get labor in there today, um, simple things that can be helpful in terms of technology or just pulling something up on a screen, um, just little things like that that kind of keep them in touch more with the outside world versus um, maybe a more rigid structure inside the South Farm. And so I think today just being able to utilize technology and innovation in the South Farm is farther away than I would hope it to be at this point in time. So within your role, you probably have to focus on ROI quite a bit mm-hmm. of technologies. And I have a theory and I'm continuing trying to refine it. My thought is that when it comes to precision technologies with animal agriculture, often we're automating or let's say augmenting 90% of the process, but the person's involved in the last step. Mm-hmm. And if our expectation, we use computer vision, is that somebody's going to be there within eight hours of us identifying an issue and somebody is there in eight hours and the next person's there in 20 hours, we're going to have complete, a very big amount of variability in success. And producers know this. And so we run research. We understand how the person's involved. The technology can work. We can be confident that it works. But because we know the people component plays such a strong role, even if it's only that last step, the ROI isn't very predictable. And mm-hmm. therefore, it's, a not, it's not necessarily the strongest business case. Mm-hmm. And that's not the tech's fault. It's just the challenge we have in today's environment. Would you agree with that? I would 100%. I mean, I think with any of these technologies that we look to put into the sow farm, whether it even be like counting pigs, for example, um, one of the things we tried was counting pigs at the sow farm with a camera. And yes, it works. Um, But what we found out is it's not going to save any labor because we're still writing on each sow card how many pigs that sow weans to take it back to her record, right? And so as we're running pigs down the wean aisle, it's great that we're getting a count but we also still had that person physically going around and counting all of the pigs in that room so that they could write a number for each sow. And so, yeah, it goes back to, there's a lot of great things out there and maybe um, the ideas there, but we haven't applied it in the right area. Um, or maybe there's another technology that needs to be used with it in order for us to capture the full value of it. And so I agree, we're not, we're not ever going to have pig barns where there's no people or um, have reduced people by half. I don't think that is ever going to happen just because biology um, is so unpredictable, right? We can predict the 66% that's in the middle of that bell-shaped curve, but you got those sows and pigs that are out there on the extremes that we as human people and caretakers and have good animal husbandry skills, that's where we're really going to make the difference. And so, yeah, I don't know if we'll ever be fully integrated with technology, um, but I think still there is opportunity to use it more in the farm and simple is better is what we have found. So if things get too complex, it's just not going to be followed through, but simple is better when it comes to technology. Awesome. Well, before we kind of wrap things up, can you share with us what's next for you? Oh, yeah. So I'm I'm continuing down the path of sour research. And so really what I'm trying to get going up here at Pipestone is um, can we create some sort of research farm so that we can bring more answers to the industry, be able to invite maybe more graduate or undergraduate students in to get them trained up. I mean, truly myself coming from a show pig background, I never thought 
um, I didn't know what commercial production was for starters. And so being able to show those students that might not have any experience in commercial production and maybe just give them a little bit of flavor for what there is in the industry and how big the other 98% of the industry is, um, I want to be able to open those doors. And so creating opportunities for those students to learn um, and bring them into the swine industry is really where I've been pushing towards next. So that's that's what I've been working on. That's cool. When when I was growing up, I think I was actually just at a South farm with a manager who worked for my dad way back when I was young. She was like, you remember me pushing you in a, in a, in a feed wagon when you were three, just kind of, as they were feeding sows, I'd be pushing through the South farm. I mean, I grew up only knowing commercial. And mm-hmm. so I kind of envy a lot of these guys and, and, uh, that are out in the, uh, the show pig world, because I keep hearing all these fun stories growing up about showing pigs and I can't relate, but uh, (laughs) it's neat to see kind of an intersection of, of all, of all of people, multiple backgrounds Mm -hmm. and what we can learn from that. Yeah. What would you uh, say is a golden nugget that you might have for the audience, a life lesson that you've had thus far? Ooh, Probably in graduate school, you just have to embrace the most challenging moments because that is truly when you learn. If I can look back at the times that I was very much struggling in terms of where are we going to go next to this research project, or I'm in the middle of 700 sows and weighing thousands of piglets and a sow prolapses or something goes wrong within that trial, um, just being able to know you're going to learn something from that process and know that when you're going through those challenging times and whether it's in production or in grad school or in life, um, that's really where you come out the other side, a much stronger person able to make those decisions better in the future. Awesome. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for joining us on the Popular Pig Podcast. It's been a pleasure to have you on here and uh, hope we can have you on here again sometime. Yes, thanks. I've enjoyed it too. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Popular Pig. We aspire to learn and grow together through the experience and wisdom shared by our esteemed guests. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues within the swine industry. For more information, please go to popularpig.com to receive updates when new episodes are available. Popular Pig is brought to you by SwineTech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com.